Thank you all. Well, thank you, Martin, for that introduction and to, to the community, thank you for having me. A particular, I'm particularly grateful to Dr. Robert Walker. He, uh, I had the privilege of spending some time with your colleague, uh, your faculty member in New York. It was a privilege and so thank you for uh, introducing me to your community, Robert. That's a real privilege. So, so I am going to spend some time, um, I hope, well representing my colleagues at New York University, welcome, uh, at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. And, and what I'm going to try to do is take you on a walk through the type of uh, research studies that we engage in and, and think about research that addresses root causes and consequences of poverty um, from a multi-level perspective, from working directly with young people who have firsthand experience in poverty, to thinking about strengthening studies that can strengthen their families or their communities, to those studies that integrate uh, economics with some of the evidence-based interventions that you might be most familiar with. Um, I'm gonna take you through some of our public safety net interventions as well. So we'll um, spend some time in New York, but I'll also take you to some of our work in South Africa, Uganda. So in some ways, Robert, I've created a menu of what you learned about in McSilver, and then I'm really excited to discuss some of the wor this work with all of you. So welcome. So, so the title is Creating a Future for Young People Locally and Globally, uh, and this is the McSilver's agenda to address the root causes and the consequences of poverty, but you're right, Martin, there's always a secret title. And, um, and, and so behind the real title is also a clue in terms of the perspective that we take, which is it takes a village, that we are a particular research group that highly values collaborative, participatory, action-oriented research methods, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about why those methods give us, I think, a particular set of strengths to address kind of poverty-related issues both in the U.S. And, and also globally. So who is our village? Young people, parents and, and families who experience firsthand the burdens that come along with poverty, community members, service providers, educators, researchers, policymakers, to address really poverty, where is my graduate students here, poverty is a multi-dimensional set of issues and and so how you address those complex problems is why we think that participatory collaborative methods really make a huge difference so so this is our mission and i'm going to get to that picture the mcsilver community collaborative board in a moment um robert you'll know that group and you'll hear some of them talk to you, um, um, and, and so the mission is to conduct, to promote and disseminate interdisciplinary applied research. So although we are housed in the Silver School of Social Work, we really have a range of staff that represent a whole a load of disciplines and draw from our faculty colleagues all across New York University. So, so let me tell you a little bit about McSilver and what defines some of the activities within McSilver. We have a commitment to really conducting applied research. And so part of what happens whenever you're the new institute is, uh, and, and McSilver has only been in existence for about four years within the NYU community, is when you're a new institute, the first thing you do is you scan, well, what are other poverty policy institutes doing? And there's fantastic ones, both here 
Uh, there's also some very strong ones in the states. And, and so, so as we started to put together what was going to define the work of McSilver, we put that word applied because what we want to do in our studies is connect policy to the implement, implementation of policy, to programming, to the actual consumers that benefit from some of those programs. And so, so we think about connecting and drawing on collaborative action research to make sure that there's voice, that the end users of any interventions are part of the equation as we design research studies, that the policymakers are ultimate payers of services or changes of policies are also at the table as we start to put together a research agenda that really rapidly translates new knowledge into action. So what do I mean about participatory research? We think about what's the direct benefit to participants in our study. And so if I think about the poverty and shame work, Robert, that we did, you did a tremendous amount of training of community members that came away with new skills um, that they might or might not have had prior to Robert coming and engaging with our collaborative board. So what's the direct benefit to participants? and that? Participatory research is also characterized by this intensive ongoing input from collaborators, whether they be community members, young people, service providers. Now many people uh, in our academy talk about collaborative research. Um, and what they mean is that uh, a board or a set of consumers might give it a, do you know what a rubber stamp is? that, that uh, Dr. Walker comes from Oxford and the group listens and then they say, oh yes, Dr. Walker, that's a good idea. Participatory research in our world means that Robert had to engage in all kinds of extra conversations to make sure there was understanding and meaning and voice in that kind of collaborative research. And, and, and it, I think that in the end, it's been a real advantage in some of our studies. We've been able to really engage and develop and train and test programs and interventions that really have kind of moved more easily in poverty-impacted communities than they might otherwise. So, so that's at least our definition, and we borrow heavily from Israel from University of Michigan. So this is our collaborative board. Um, Robert, I like this picture because I'm about 10 years younger in this picture. Than, 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 um, but this is their, our group of key stakeholders that guide our program of research at McSilver. These are very, very trained, experienced community members, educators, researchers who have engaged in lots of participatory research in the past. And I'll talk a little bit about you know, how they've influenced some of the studies at McSilver as I go forward. So, so the rest of the time, I'm going to concentrate on our body of work that focuses it on young people. Focuses on young people who experience the burdens of poverty, their families experience not having enough to really stretch to an end of the month or end of the year to provide for their children. And I'm going to concentrate on poverty in two ways. Not having enough economic resources or material resources, but along with poverty, at least in our context in, in New York, comes a host of other exposure to social ills. And that those, that exposure, whether it be community violence, whether it be high rates in community of substance use or HIV, those exposure, as well as the under-resources within our safety net, within our public institutions, creates kind of a double, triple, quadruple, 
you know, burden for the kids and families that have been involved in our studies. And so how we address helping kids and families out of poverty, but also understand that exposure to some of those ills have tremendous consequences for their mental health, their own physical health, their own risk behavior is, is part of our work. So remember I told you it's complex. So how we think about multiple overlapping, sometimes even competing outcomes in our work is incredibly important. So I'm going to take you through a set of smaller projects, larger studies that are ongoing at the McSilver Institute to give you a feel for some of our work. And then I'm going to end by talking about how we translate what we have learned from these studies into policy, advocacy, training, technical assistance, a whole set of applied activities. And so, so the first place I'm going to concentrate on is thinking about young people who, again, experience the complex circumstances I just laid out, and, and how to help them to get on a more successful trajectory, particularly academically, so that they can have a road out of poverty. And that's a project that we call Step Up. And Step Up is an evidence-based model that is designed by young people for young people who are actually on a trajectory to not finish what you would call secondary school, not finish high school in the States. And if you don't finish high school in the States, I'm going to talk to you about what the poverty consequences are for those young people. So this is a, a, a study that was designed uh, by young people for, people, uh, for young people. Um, and what's important about the young people that I'm going to introduce you to is sometimes we pick the best and the brightest young people to design these programs. When I talk about end users, I mean the kids themselves that are struggling to get out of high school. And, and as you can imagine, when we have teachers nominate those kids, those are not the first kids nominated, they are the last kids nominated. But this is a program that's meant to have infused kids' voice in for, for the, that they will be the end users of this particular program. So, so Step Up really focuses on preventing high school dropout but also preventing some of the other issues that you know, stop you from completing secondary school, mental health and substance use difficulties, as well as early pregnancy, at least in the states. My research funders hate this. Why? Because there are three different outcomes, four different outcomes, and research funders, at least in the states, want me to pick one very narrowly and measure that. And yet, in some ways, these are the challenges that kids face all in one package. And so do we have an intervention that can, you know, target some of the factors that influence all of these outcomes together has been some of our challenge that, that we've um, tried to, to take up at McSilver. So first of all, what does a high school diploma or a secondary school diploma have to do with poverty? These are just a sampling of statistics around what happens if you drop out of secondary school. So the average dropout can expect to earn an annual income of about $20,000. That's a full $10,000 less than a high school graduate, a full almost $40,000 less than, than somebody who finishes with a bachelor's degree. Dropouts experience a rate of poverty around 30%. Um, and this is a particularly staggering statistic for the kids and families that I work with. Among dropouts between the ages of 16 and 24, incarceration rates are 63 times higher than among college graduates. And that's particularly true for young men of color who are in poverty. Um, and then cost to society 
is, is, is can be quite substantial. For every typical, uh, for every t a young person who drops out of high school, it costs almost three hundred thousand dollars to to fund their services. It's a really uh, meaningful investment to help kids actually get out of high school in in, in at least our. Our, our context in New York City, and I think it's probably true here in the UK as well. So, so from a multi-level perspective, there are some pretty significant differences between young people who struggle and young people who do not. And, and many of you know the literature that is more individually focused, right? We've done a lot of studies looking at kids' individual characteristics, their mental health, their social skills, their motivation. And in some ways, that body, if you take just that body of research alone, the implication is you work with these, these kids to build these skills up. But it also, from a kind of a more ecologically focused frame, suggests that you're starting potentially in the wrong place because kids are the end product of a whole set of their experiences. So then you look at, you know, what are some factors at the family level that sort kids out between those that can be successful and those that, that are not. And there's many, many family characteristics where family support, adult role models, parental supervision can really help young people um, do well in terms of outcomes. And so, so many of us, because we like kids and we like families, we'll stop at the family level in terms of intervention. But then there's lots of characteristics of kids' context, the schools that they go to, their access to employment and, and, and post-secondary opportunities, um, their, their, their belief that in the, the models that they have that there's a future for them. Um, and, and so in our world, in Step Up, we thought it was really kind of misplaced given the evidence that you would just intervene with kids. And, and, and families, they bear a burden of poverty and are undermined in many ways, but context also plays a role. And so as we thought about designing an evidence-based intervention, something that we called Step Up, we thought about the multiple ecologies that kids interact with, find themselves in. And so we think about Step Up as an intervention that goes across a community and helping kids be successful within their own neighborhood, changing some of the structures and supports that exist within kids' neighborhoods. We intervene in a school context, a family context, and also with youth to help them be successful. This very pretty graph is our attempt to make meaning out of the developmental assets at the community level, the family level, and the individual level that successful kids have access to. And for kids that are in poverty, often are blocked by those access. It is very unusual in our currently, uh, our current New York City, but maybe a US context, that service providers pay any attention to this developmental research. They don't practice by research. Many of our training programs, even at the master's level, don't give you practice models that say, here's the structures that help kids be successful. Try to build those up systematically. But Step Up took the approach that we were going to create a practice model that was guided by the evidence and infused with young people's voice, infused with their family's voice, relevant to the community. And so there's a very careful mapping that goes on in Step Up between what are the different types of options available for young people within Step Up, what evidence is incorporated, 
What, where are the choices that kids and families have in terms of taking advantage of youth groups, one-on-one -on -one mentoring, family engagement, teacher engagement, academic supports? So in Step Up, at this particular slide deck, we've, we've just started our seventh cohort of young people that have gone through Step Up. They've enrolled, and we now finally have longitudinal outcomes for young people to see whether they've actually achieved what we had hoped, which is that they do well, get out of high school or secondary school, and, and see if they could be on a trajectory that potentially is out of poverty. And so I'll just present a little bit about who these kids are and then what happened to them in those first two cohorts. And we continue to track kids longitudinally with a host of standardized measures that at this particular juncture, I won't bore you with, but at least I'll give you some of the main findings. So the first is that, that you had to really actually not be doing very well in school. You had to be behind academically. You had to be really off track in terms of credit accumulation. You had to have at least 10 or more absences in a year, poor attendance. You had to have a behavioral or mental health challenge uh, engagement, some evidence in high-risk behavior, as well as school disciplinary and guidance uh, actions. For the kids in Step Up, they didn't meet one of these criteria, two of these criteria. All seven of them had to be present. And unfortunately, many, many kids in ordinary, regular New York City high school met criteria for all seven of those particularly overlapping criteria into this particular program. So what happened to these kids? First of all, given the menu of cho choices, given the options, given the number of kind of uh, youth voice in our curriculum, we had a pretty high rate of engagement and completion. And, and we just tried to mark that against some of the other kind of options that, that we saw in terms of rates of engagement within the literature. What's really important to kind of contrast, I think in our particular context, step up with is the graph on the right. That's the rate of involving young people in their adolescent years in behavioral health or mental health services. That's the rate of engagement, very, very poor. And so we saw, at least in some of the early cohorts of step up, a high rate of engagement but what does that mean in terms of whether you actually complete high school? And so this particular graph suggests that, you know, even when we count the few kids that we did lose to follow up, um, we have a dropout rate of about 11%. That compares really significantly to kids with mental health challenges who typically graduate from high school in about a rate of 45%. In some of the urban high schools that we work in, I'm gonna to talk to you about the overall uh, Board of Ed in New York City in just a little bit. Many, many of the high schools that we work with, even kids without serious behavioral challenges, were graduating from high school at about the rate of 48 to 52%. And, and so we were very, very pleased with those graduation rates from our initial cohort, as well as their conversion to community college and other post-high you know, post school opportunities. And so what we started to see in this type of data, in addition to a number of our standardized measures, is we started to see functionally that kids that were very compromised could actually be successful with the supports that, that all kids actually deserve. And then these are the pregnancy outcomes for, for kids in Step Up relative to kids in high poverty areas. Um, we didn't necessarily do a pregnancy prevention curriculum in Step Up, but what we did is we bolstered their attachment to school, their family, their success and community. So, so Robert in an earlier conversation with our students today said, you know, wait a minute, why is an academic institution providing service? 
right? That's the job of, that's the job of your health center. You know, some of the other service providers, what's an academic institution or a McSilver Poverty Institute doing in the business of service delivery? Well, we consider ourselves the optimal lab to bring together the best evidence along with the perspective of key end users and policymakers. We're a platform to put together what we hope to be more successful options than what currently exist. Now, right now, today, this year, New York City will spend $30 million in dropout prevention program. And, and that's a lot of millions. To get high school graduation rates for the average public school in New York City of about 68%, and for the urban schools, poverty-impacted schools that we work in, anywhere from 42 to 48%. And so what we see ourselves in the McSilver Institute is creating new <coughs> options and new ways to spend those supports so that you can actually help kids have a route out of poverty that's likely to, to matter more than what you currently get for some of your public dollars. So I don't want to mislead you. Step Up is a very important part. It's been funded you know, for, for several years by the Robin Hood Foundation as well as National Institute of Health. But that's not the only work of McSilver. And so I'm going to breeze through just a couple of other types of interventions before I go on to our interventions into to safety net. So, so in addition to working with young people in kind of a step-up context, we've just received our second very large grant from the National Health Service to test what we call multiple family groups or family strengthening options for young people who have serious behavioral challenges. And these uh, young people now are not teenagers, like I just described in Step Up, but they are younger elementary school kids. Why are we intervening earlier with younger elementary school kids? Well, the same way, I don't know, Robert, do, do all these kind of idioms transfer? My grandmother would say, Little kids, little problems. Big kids, big problems. So, so really, when you think about addressing kids' behavioral difficulties, adolescence, you can make a difference. You can help kids course correct during adolescence. But they've lived for a while. Those are much more, easy, much more difficult to impact. And so for this particular family strengthening intervention that we call multiple family group, we are focused on two sets of outcomes. The first is that can we address kids' serious behavioral challenges uh, by engaging their families? Not just kids, but now engaging families as the kids are little in elementary school. And so what we want to do in this particular protocol-driven intervention is bring together, again, the best science. You guys are known for your parenting and family-level interventions. The best science in terms of parenting interventions, but also designed in collaboration with parents and providers. Why would we spend the time redoing the science, re-looking at the science? Because at least in the US, Families stay away from behavioral health services in droves. Depending on which year you look at the national reports, anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of kids have serious mental health difficulties that will never be appropriately addressed by the systems that we have set up. And if you go into poverty-impacted neighborhoods and just do some very quick screens of which kids are challenged, challenged behaviorally, you'll see behavioral problems come up as high as 35 to 42% in communities. And so it's incredibly important to us that we take the science that you know very well from, from your department, but also get it to kids and families that actually need it. 
So what is the science day? And those of you that work with uh, in, in evidence-based interventions, um, you, you know that the science is pretty clear that families matter in terms of kids' behavioral challenges. Parenting matters, family processes matter, within qualities of family, within family support, parent-child interactions matter. And, and that's a pretty robust science, that parent management strategies really matter in terms of how behaviorally successful kids are. What is not always as clear in the literature, in the clinical trial literature, in particular of these interventions, is who stays in those trials and who drops out of the trials. Who drops out of the trials are about 100% of the families that we actually see in poverty-impacted communities. Families with high stress, low social support, and not surprising given that I told you two-thirds to three-quarters of kids never come to services, high stigma related to kind of helping. And so those were additional parts of the literature that we needed to bring into this parent management literature. And we worked with our community collaborative board to look over the science, really dive through those, those journal articles. So once actual parents got over how we as academics talk about parents, which is not small, we blame them at about every turn if something goes wrong with their families. Right? After they got over that, they said, God, you white people don't know very well how people really live. Race is a huge issue in the United States. Right? There are tremendous differences by race, by ethnicity, by worldview within the U.S., and it differs pretty substantially from how we have been kind of raised in the academy to talk about parent-child interaction. Those of you that are parents, do I have parents in the room at all? Anybody raising children? So Robert, when you raised your children, did you and Jenny make a, a pride yourself on your positive parent-child interaction? No. You were trying to worry about not yelling at them, right? <laughs> Maybe being positive even though you were stressed after work, right? And so, so parents read of some of our intervention is that it sounded like the academy, all seemingly good stuff but needed to be translated into a set of principles that families could really wrap their mind around if they were going to participate that also mapped onto the science. So this is our best attempt in, a, in six words with that collaborative board to capture all that you needed to know from the scientific evidence about what parts of family life related to kids' behavioral success and their challenges. But now as a family, the science was accessible to me. And if you were a busy service provider, the science was also more accessible to you. And that's where the four R's and two S's came. These six words guide our whole intervention protocol and the activities and the, the, the uh, content that organize the 16-week the <coughs> intervention that we call multiple family group. Parents and, and clinicians co-facilitate multiple family groups, which can come be as large as six to eight to 10 families, children with behavioral challenges, their siblings, their parents coming together at local community clinics. So clinicians and parent advocates co-facilitate these groups. Clinicians bring professional expertise. Parent advocates provide support, information, and kind of the real world. And I'm just gonna have, because we miss Robert in the States, have one of your families that you met, two of them actually, talk to you a little bit about their experience in multiple family groups. Sometimes parents don't want to hear something from someone who isn't a parent. Um, they may feel offended or they may feel like they're insulted or they may feel, but they may be more um, apt to listen to someone who is a parent and might appreciate you know, what they have to say a little bit more. 
families can relate to us and they, there's a certain ease and comfort with us that they, you don't find with um, a clinician or someone who has a title, you know, I'm here for you. That's why I like to say I'm a parent partner as, a, as opposed to an advocate sometimes because advocate is like someone who's fight, fight, rah, rah. Um, but a partner is someone who's partnering with you to help, help navigate whatever system or situation that you're going to. You know the phases and the steps that they, they've been in because we've been in there too. And sometimes that helps the families be more open and willing to talk about what's going on in their, in their uh, surroundings. Do you recognize them, Robert? You do. All three of them are on the collaborative board. So, so in addition to this collaborative development, bringing science together to our family strengthening approach, our group-delivered approach, we've had two uh, very large grants from the National Institute of Health to experimentally study how do these groups do in terms of engagement and in terms of outcomes for kids. And so we published a lot on this work, so I'm not going to bore you with every bit of the published outcome data, but I will refer you to some of the papers and make them all available to you. But this was a randomized effectiveness trial that it involved young people, I told you, in elementary school. They had to meet criteria for serious disruptive behavior. So, so ODD stands for Oppositional Defiant Disorder or uh, Conduct Disorder, which is a really essentially the, the medical terms for kids that are behaving badly in lots of different spheres and, and seriously impairs their functioning. 100% um, of the sample is low-income African-American and Latino families. So this is our experimental design. The first set of, uh, the first study, the effectiveness trial, was set in 10 clinics across New York City that served only um, patients or children or families that pay for their services with Medicaid, which is the public benefit for health services and behavioral health services in the state. And we randomly assigned 400 young people to receive multiple family groups versus what, what we thought was good standard of care. Uh, within these particular clinics. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you about emerging findings that are now in press or out um, from some of the 408 young people and their families that were involved in this particular study. Just tell me, let me tell you just a little bit about the families. Uh, only 45% of the sample is employed. About half the family, uh, half the parents had completed high school. Pretty evenly is split with African-American and Latinos with the rest of the racial category being described as mixed or others. Uh, families had an average of three children and the young people were evenly split by gender with an average age of about nine and a half years. This particular graph talks about uh, the first kind of aim, which is can we get anybody to come? Can we engage people in a multiple family group set within clinics? And we were very happy that at week 16, which is the end of our protocol for multiple family groups, about 80% of families came, picked up their graduation certificate for, from the multiple family group approach. So what standard care looks like across these 10 clinics. What you see is by 12 weeks, about 16% of families even anywhere near the clinic. And you see the steep, steep dropout that occurred over the course of 16 weeks. But does engagement mean outcome? No. It doesn't mean any difference in terms of kids' behavioral difficulties unless you take a look at it. And so this is just two graphs that I'll present to you as well as give you the references for the whole paper. And so these particular graphs look at what happens to kids over time behaviorally um, at four different time points, at baseline, mid-test, 
post-test and six-month follow-up, which ends up to be about 10 months from baseline, um, and contrasts both kids in multiple family group, which is kids in, uh, relative to kids in services as usual. And so what you'll see is significant differences for the multiple family group condition, which is in red, significant declines of kids' behavioral difficulties, and those actually, those scores are actually lower than kind of subclinical, we were able to, to bring a lion share of the kids to subclinical levels of disruptive behavior. And this is the parenting stress index. We need to explain, well, what happened? Was it the content of multiple family groups? Our, our working hypothesis is we really helped parents decrease their stress, increase their parenting, and that that's the literature that, that we tapped into that we thought improved kids' behavioral functioning. I'm, I'm happy to provide the papers that have all the standardized measures, but it gives you a sense of like we're intervening with kids in Step Up, we're intervening with families and multiple family group. And part of what I like to think about as our program of research at McSilver and then in general our program of research is many times I would tell you a story about how we imported multiple family groups to our work in Africa, to our work in Asia, to our work in South America. It's actually the other way around. In our HIV prevention and care work that we call CHAMP, Collaborative HIV Prevention and Adolescent Mental Health Project, we started to use multiple family groups in Africa, in Asia, in South America. Families loved them. And then we brought them to New York City. So we have this conversation about bi-directional kind of infra, you know, import. And, um, and, and so that's how we really think about learning from our global work and infusing in our local work. So I can't tell you too much about HIV and for the CHAMP HIV Prevention and Care Projects, except that that's where I'm headed next week um, to really work with a set of investigators in country, in Ghana, in Uganda, in um, in South Africa around family strengthening to, to as, a, as an opportunity to prevent kids' sexual risk-taking in high HIV-related uh, contexts, and also to address the HIV care needs of the growing number of young people in Africa who were born HIV positive and are racing to, south, uh, racing to adolescence. This is what um, CHAMP looks like in South Africa. I'm going to give you my two Zulu words. This is the Amakawe family. This is uh, an attempt by our South African Collaborative Board to take the best science around what will help young people delay their sexual activity and engage in more protective sexual um, activity as they move into adolescence. They took the science that existed from HIV prevention care in the US and across the globe, but really worked on a cartoon-based intervention in a context where it's very difficult for parents and kids to talk about meaningful issues around puberty, sexuality, and HIV risk. A lot of the work that I've talked about so far, Robert would say to me, but Mary, you're working with kids. You're working with families. Nice outcomes. But kids are still in poverty. Families are still experiencing the burdens of poverty. And so I want to highlight some other work that I think is really very promising for those of you that are interested in interventions. The work of my colleague at Columbia, his name is Fred Samala, who is doing a number, leading a number of projects set in Uganda where we're integrating psychosocial supports for young people and families with economic interventions to help 
kids and families lift themselves simultaneously out of poverty as we're trying to cement those protective relationships with kids and families. So his particular intervention is called <coughs> SUBI, which in Luganda means hope. And it was designed initially for uninfected orphans and vulnerable children. The goal was to help young people with their health, with their mental health, with their sexual risk behavior by improving the economic stability of young people and their families. That's in stark contrast to how many of us in, in kind of global sectors are running in with usual care, school supplies, counseling, um, you know, models of kind of HIV prevention. You know, in, in Fred's particular NIH-funded studies, we are doing those usual care things, but he also has created an opportunity for kids and families to invest in child savings accounts, in microenterprise, in additional kind of mentoring around poverty alleviation. And he's had some success also with government funding, picking up some of his financing schemes. So I'm happy to talk about SUBI as we want to go, if we want to going forward. So I'm racing to the end because Robert really advised me we want to talk to these smart people in the audience. And so I want to also just go a little bit to not just work with children, not just work with family, uh, not work around integrating family supports with economic interventions, but also what are some of the other work that we're working on at McSilver actively. Um, you might not know this fellow, but he ran for president. Know you know him. Yeah, you were afraid of him. I was afraid of him, but, uh, but, he, but he didn't win. But he had this very important line during the campaign. He said, uh, the very poor, I'm not concerned about them. There's a safety net. And, and so, in fact, McSilver uh, thinks that, that Mitt actually has a problem with this safety net. There's some gigantic holes in it. And that there's science that needs to be used, your science, your findings, some of our findings, to be able to think about what is the real net that families need. Um, there is um, in our state, which is New York State, uh, but across the U.S., a shrinking of the public safety net. And this is just one example of recent data from our state around the cuts that have happened in human services um, and that that has consequences for not only the recipients of those services but also the people that work in the sector and the investment in communities. And so at McSilver, we're really trying to figure out what are ways that we can intervene with policymakers to bolster some of these programs or Many, many of our policymakers are making these decisions because some of these programs, like summer youth employment programs, career pathways, runaway and homeless services, non-residential DV programs, to name a few, they are making some of their decisions based on the evidence or the lack of evidence that these programs actually are helpful. And so how to think about infusing policymakers who are making decisions to defund programs based on lack of evidence with some new alternatives like Step Up so that they can continue to invest in key sectors of our, our world. There's nothing wrong with the safety net as long as the links are kept wide enough. Um, and, and so that goes to the growing inequality and also um, the, the disproportionate burden that kids of color in our city and in our country are actually bearing. 
So this is the rapid translation arm of the McSilver Institute. I presented lots of research, lots of program development, but also if you want to influence policy, you have to spend a fair amount of time in Washington, D.C., and you have to spend a fair amount of time in a place called Albany, New York, which is upstate and very cold, um, but where um, the, the policymakers make decisions around you know, framing of, of funding and framing of organization of support. And so this is just the logos from the Clinic Technical Assistance Center. We are very fortunate that our state is interested in how to put things like multiple family group and step up and some of the other evidence base into a training and technical assistance center for policymakers, for service providers. And so I'm happy to talk about how we're attempting to intervene and influence those decisions of policymakers as we go. And so, so in closing, I just wanna say that the McSilver Institute really benefited from Dr. Walker being here. I was going to talk a little bit about poverty and shame work that some of you have actually participated in uh, in the New York City context, but I'll let him do that as well. But hopefully you get a sense that we have a village locally, globally invested in child and family-focused research, addressed, uh, interested in addressing root causes and consequences of poverty. So thank you very much. <laughs>